You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the EU Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. and the World Affairs Council of Seattle for bringing Ambassador Wouter to the University of Washington and to this class. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for your kind introduction. Thank you. Well, I'm really grateful uh, because we love to reach out to the young, bright minds uh, uh, and uh, to the local community. Uh, and uh, I'm so, I have to apologize because I understand that I'm I prevented you from taking the exam today. Is that, is that true? <laughs> so so uh, uh, maybe now I'm the last person standing between uh, you and the exam. So, but uh, thank you for, for hosting. And, uh, indeed, I've been asked to speak a bit uh, about Europe, about the EU. Uh, I didn't know where to start. I will start somewhere by saying that Europe, for many Europeans, is, is, a, is an ambition. It's a dream. It's an idea. Uh, and that is basically anchored in, in values like um, peace, liberty, and mutual respect, and some other values as well. And it has been created by uh, a generation of uh, politicians after the Second World War with, a, I think, a great vision. I will mention some names, Jean Monnet, of course, uh, Robert Schumann, Assis de Gasperi, Italian, uh, Paul Horis Pack, a Belgian, and, and they had a vision of, uh, yes, let's say, working together in a way that would serve the interest of more than one country. Uh, that was the basic idea. And afterwards, there were, of course, new generations of politicians came. I would call them the builders. You, you, have made, uh, you may have heard of uh, François Mitterrand and uh, Helmut Kohl. They were really building further the European, uh, the European Union. And now, uh, today, there is an enormous responsibility on the politicians and the leaders uh, uh, of today, but also on the future generation of politicians, because Europe uh, needs a bit of a new momentum uh, to anchor the, the great dream in, uh, in ev more everyday reality. And, it, and this need comes at a time when there is uncertainty because of Brexit and also other factors. We can discuss that uh, uh, during the Q&A. So um, my first point is that uh, really for the future generation, uh, your, your colleagues in Europe, your students, we need as many European leaders to be put in the cockpit of the European Union to, bring, to give a new momentum to the project. I mentioned European Union and of course the logic then the question of uh, the students normally is, but Ambassador, tell us a bit what is your definition of the European Union? How do you, what do you see, having lived in the worked for the European Union for so many years, what would be your personal description of the European Union? And I will make an attempt uh, for your benefit uh, on and try to describe what I think is the nature of the European Union as an organizational project. And first of all, one has to look at the geography, 28 states, so spanning almost geographically speaking, the entire continent of Europe. 
so it's it's a long span it's a big span uh, if you look at the, at the map from the north to the south and the east to the west or the west to the east it contains more than 500 million citizens who by way of being a citizen of one of these 28 member states also have the citizenship of the European Union um, it is of course a peace motivated project without any doubt another characteristic it's a community of law I don't know if there are many legal persons here in the room but this is one of the most important characteristics of the European Union uh, which is often not very well understood in the United States it's a community of law and I mean by that that European institutions create law they create legislation in a rather complex interaction between a number of institutions I can explain how it works if you want but this the law that is created in different fields of activity and relevant to society to the economy and to the society this law is directly applicable in the member states so it's not just a law that hangs there like the law of an international organization no it goes directly into the national legal systems of the different member states and moreover the citizens of the EU national citizens of any of the 28 countries they can use this law directly before the court if they need it and this law of the European uh, of the European Union will always have precedence over the national law or the regional or the local law so so it's a very important uh, characteristic of course another uh, dimension in, and that becomes more and more important EU has fundamental values there's I don't know if some of you have looked at the, the treaties on the European Union but if you look at article 2 uh, it describes in the most beautiful way uh, to my to my list the values the values of the EU and of course then there are the institutions it's not just an organization with weak institutions no it has rather strong institutions and, and these institutions they have real power European Commission the Council of Ministers the European Parliament the European Council the Court, European Court of Justice European Central Bank and some others and they have real powers now there is a, a, a legal text that is at the basis of this construction uh, well we could call it a constitution it's not a constitution but it's a, it's it's a fundamental treaty I would say and in that treaty there are different texts that attribute competence to the European Union well the um, uh, contributing competences to an organization in any legal text or any constitutional text is very important and in Europe we in the European Union in our legal system we use the principle of attribution of competences which means that the European Union can only exercise the competences which are specifically attributed to the European Union and uh, and so this is this is a very important uh, uh, constitutional principle to which I will come back later now which are the the heart and or the economic heart and the lungs of the European Union I would say in my personal description without any doubt uh, the euro and the internal or the single market so the single currency which is used by 19 out of the 28 member states 
and uh, the single market. So it's not 20, for business, it's not 28 separate markets, it's one single market. I will also come back to that. Do we have, do we need the agreement of each and every state, 28, to take decisions in the European Union? Not necessarily. There are a lot of issues on which the institution, and especially the Council of Ministers, where the governments are represented, <coughs> according to the subject matter, uh, they, can, they can decide by a qualified majority. So there is, there is majority decision-making uh, decision based on the principle of majority, which is it. Another characteristic <coughs> um, is that the EU does a lot of coordinating national policy in many areas, starting with foreign policy, for example. If there is, if we speak about European foreign policy or foreign policy of the European Union, it is formed on the basis of cooperation between the national member states, and they discuss until they find a common position on a certain geographical or thematic issue in the world. And then you have a common position, but it's on the basis of coordination. Um, but also in many other areas, family law, justice and home affairs, fight against terrorism, uh, sending peacekeeping missions abroad on behalf of the European Union, all this is done based on the principle of cooperation among the 28 member states. Useless to say that the EU is also a world, a world trade actor and a world humanitarian actor. So these are the elements I would bring forward in trying to describe in a rather personal way uh, the uh, nature of the European Union. Um, my next point is again a question uh, that uh, I'm often asked. Yes, but uh, all that is very well. 28 member states, uh, a, uh, a sui generis, it, a regional organization, it's, it cannot be compared to any other organization. But the people themselves, what do they have in common in Europe? What do the, or the 500 or more than 500 million people in our citizens in the European Union, what do they have in common? And that's a pretty difficult question because um, there is a lot of uh, diversity, of course, in the European Union. There is diversity within the member states. Looking at my own country, we have three uh, different communities uh, uh, that speak different languages, French, uh, uh, Flemish, and, uh, and even German in one part of the country. So, so there's a lot of diversity. So what, what do we have in common? And, and but I would say that among the things that are common, if you try to describe commonality uh, among EU citizens, I would say, and we were referring to this uh, when we had the initial conversation, multiple identities. I think that many people feel they have, wherever they live in uh, one of the member states of the European Union, that they have, of course, a state identity, they may have also a regional identity, but they also feel a European identity. So multiple identities, so including national, regional, and European identity. I think second thing that is um, that is interesting is that um, overall, 
probably, and then when I certainly compare it with the United States, there is an overall preference uh, for an organization of the state that is a welfare state, I would say, and a belief that the state has a large responsibility for reducing economic and social differences. I think there is also an, an important characteristic there. And if I can illustrate it, this point by, by, by some uh, figures, uh, EU population is 6% of the world population. It produces 22% of the world gross national product. So if the world produces 122% originates in Europe. But 50%, 5-0, of welfare benefits that exist in the world have their origin in the EU. So just to illustrate my point that uh, uh, there is a, a belief that the state has a responsibility, uh, even a large responsibility, for re reducing economic and, and, and social differences. Um, there, are, there are other characteristics, I think, when it comes to approaching um, international issues, there would be a natural tendency for multilateral uh, 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 non-military approaches to foreign policy. There is still a strong basis, I think, in Europe and among the citizens uh, su of su for supporting democracy, human rights, and to a certain extent free markets. And there is also a view, I think, among Europeans that local and global interests cannot be separated. So, and of course, a great respect for cultural diversity. So, I try to describe, I know it's too rapidly, but uh, uh, some of the things that I think um, that Europeans share among them in terms of beliefs, of aims, of values. Now, there are also, and especially in the United States, but also elsewhere, there are some myths, which are at the same time are criticism at the European Union uh, as an organization. There are, and I'm not going to develop all the, the, the different criticism or the, of the, or the myths, but, so, but I will pick out uh, maybe two. One of the criticisms that we also hear now in, inside the European Union, that the organization, the EU, has led to a loss of sovereignty. And that's a myth I want to bust, because uh, the European integration process is not about losing sovereignty, it's about pooling sovereignty, bringing it together. That's the DNA of the European integration project. It's, uh, and it is true, of course, that once that national that nation states have decided to bring together the national sovereignty for the the good the better good of the whole club, then of course uh, the ability to decide things as you please yourself becomes more limited. But nothing, nothing. There's no, not one inch of sovereignty that has been. Uh, pulled uh, together in Europe without the consent of the nation-state concerned. So uh, keep that in mind. It has never been the case 
that uh, sovereignty has been transferred to Europe or pulled to Europe, European level, without without a consent. And of course, uh, sometimes the circumstances can push you, uh, uh, can push member states to pull a bit more sovereignty. Uh, and we had uh, because of globalized world, and also when you have the financial crisis, for example, after the financial crisis, there was a big, at a certain moment, a push to pull sovereignty in order to decide upon a banking union. And, and uh, I lived through these negotiations, and I still remember at one moment, all the governors of the national banks of the big countries, be it the UK, in France, or in Germany, they were saying, no, 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 we will never deal with the, the banks as a, as a global sector in Europe, we will care, take care of our national champions, our big banks in our own, own country. A couple of months later, I mean, the whole mood changed. And then uh, they said, no, maybe it's better to pull the sovereignty in order to uh, make our banks stronger uh, within the whole of the European Union. So uh, when um, Eurosceptics, and there are, there are some Eurosceptics, uh, or Eurocritics tell tell you that, uh, for example, your country has to leave uh, the European Union in order to regain sovereignty, uh, you might find yourself um, uh, outside the EU, but wanting to cooperate on similar matters as if you were in inside the EU, and uh, but without being able to participate in the decision making. And we only have to look at the examples of countries like Norway, Liechtenstein, Iceland, Switzerland, the, the countries that I would call the Western European holdouts against membership, they want to cooperate with the European Union. They're outside. They want to adopt the same rules as the European Union in the economic sphere, in the justice and home affairs sphere, and many other spheres, but they're not part of the European Union. So uh, they cannot... Um, uh, they cannot. Uh, they are not able to vote as members of the clubs, but uh, they still want to cooperate. So, so be careful with these arguments. And so, I don't. I, I don't think that one should buy um, the criticism that the EU is about losing uh, sovereignty. Now, <clears throat> the uh, um, another of the many criticism is that, uh, and I make it short, is that the EU is responsible for uh, too much regulation, uh, over-regulation. The reg regulatory burden of the EU is so heavy on member states that it, uh, it's a bit the argument we also hear in Washington <laughs> as far as, uh, as the legislation is concerned that is made at the federal level. But I have not found uh, any data that would bear uh, this argument out, this argument of too much regulation. Um, when you looked at the reports of national parliaments, of regional parliaments, you will probably find in their statistical analysis, including the reports you read in the UK, I mean the parliament, the great parliament of the UK, that 15, 15 to 20 percent of national laws in member states 
are the result of EU requirements or EU regulation. So the statistics do not bear out that criticism. So and the rest of the regulation well has its origin either in local, regional, or state uh, level governance. Um, I would love to also bust the other myths about the EU, but uh, I think I shall. I have to move to uh, maybe the uh, economics because uh, the EU and the so give some remarks on the economy because, uh, and then maybe I can end with some remarks on the on the US EU relationship today. Now, on, I don't know what your knowledge is of the EU economy, so. Uh, uh, you have to ask the questions if I'm developing remarks that uh, are self-evident, already self-evident for you, or um, if you want to to complete them with uh, with your own knowledge. But this year is, uh, I think, the the tenth. I'm not saying anniversary. Uh, I would say now this year marks a decade of uh, of uh, the beginning of the global economic and financial crisis. It was very much a difficult period uh, for the world and also for the European Union in particular. But I think it's fair to say that uh, Europe has rebuilt some confidence uh, in its own financial system. And uh, by establishing common standards and common rules, for the banks in the European Union. And today the banks, it is true, I think it's a fair statement, are stronger and better capitalized than they were before. Uh, they have increasingly the necessary firepower to lend to the real economy, which is very important, and, uh, and to provide the investment that uh, most European companies uh, would need, including the great number of small and medium-sized com companies. So that's a remark on uh, the whole issue of financial stability, which remain an, uh, a point of attention uh, uh, today, of course. The um, second remark I would like to make is on the, the nature of the economic policy, the, the kind of narrative that the European, many the European Commission and the member states are trying to put forward to agree on a common economic policy. And I think there are three uh, characteristics in that uh, policy. Is first of all, sound fiscal policies. Sound fiscal policies. So uh, the European Commission uh, is uh, as a kind of, is exercising an oversight over the budgets, the national budgets of uh, the member states. So that's very important. And this goes back to a commitment that the member states undertook in the Treaty of Maastricht, which is one of the, the major revisions of the Treaty of Rome, uh, when it was agreed that the national budget deficit could not exceed 3% of the GNP. And so in order to respect that ambition or that objective, um, the European Commission and also to a certain extent the European Central Bank, the exercise oversight. So sound fiscal policies. Then of course structural reforms in the national economy. And every country can, upon encouragement by the European Commission, 
and identification of some key areas, for example, the uh, labor law, uh, the competitive, <coughs> competitive position of a country, of a member state compared to others, the, uh, the productivity rate. So it can be different things, but the Commission is asking or suggesting that member states try to improve on the structure of their economy. And so these are the structural reforms in national economic systems. And then the third characteristic of the economic, the macroeconomic policy of the moment is uh, probably the boost uh, of investment. And in that respect, I have to, to tell you that uh, sometimes I'm a bit surprised that uh, we'll be living on the other side in the United States, in Washington, D.C. And we hear a lot, a lot of, and we read a lot about the, the a new infrastructure plan uh, or a new investment plan decided by the federal government, uh, which would benefit uh, uh, the individual states when they have, and of course there are some needs. But in Europe, there has three years, already three years ago, an um, investment plan, uh, uh, Europe's infrastructure plan has been pushed through. It was launched three years ago, and it has in a, in a short time, or in that short time, it has mobilized more than 236 billion euros in both public and private investment and supporting projects in all the 28 EU member states. And the Commission has now decided to extend that plan uh, from, these on initial, from the initial amount of 315 billion euro to 500 billion by the end of two, uh, 2020. So this is also, so it's not just a principle of macroeconomic policy that is uh, put forward, there is also implementation of that principle. Now, here's my third remark uh, on the economic side. Um, is this, are these objectives of macroeconomic policy, are they producing results? And what is the state of the EU economy? Um, well, the economy is EU economy is expanding for um, a fifth year in a row. Um, and the economic growth stands now at around uh, 2% of the EU, for the EU, and it's about 2.2% for the Eurozone. Eurozone are meaning uh, the 19 countries that uh, have adopted and accepted one single currency. Um, so there is recovery after the crisis. You can discuss whether 2% or 2.1% is, is enough, of course, uh, you can do. You can but at least uh, at this stage, we can say that recovery seems to be rather broad-based. I mean by that, that it uh, seems to benefit uh, the 28 EU member states, including those countries that until recently were in uh, some difficulty, like Spain, Portugal, and or even Greece. So Greece has reconnected with positive economic growth. And investment is, um, is picking up. Uh, unemployment is at the lowest since 2008, if I may take that reference here. 
And the public deficits, I mentioned fiscal policy, the public deficits today uh, in the EU have been brought down from uh, an average of 6.6% of GDP in 2009, 6.6% of GDP today. <coughs> so some will argue this is too much austerity, but uh, I think that uh, the objectives regarding fiscal policy promoted by the European institutions and accepted by the member states have produced at least results in terms of bringing down public deficits. Um, so this was my third remark. I will um, make a fourth remark uh, on uh, maybe on trade policy uh, because this remains one of the most difficult issues and most challenging issues today in dealing with uh, the, the big bit of transatlantic partner with the United States. Um, if I may speak a bit openly, but I think that's okay. Uh, um, the the way that the, the president of the United States looks upon the EU has a bit changed. But today I can I can tell you that his view seems to be that the EU is uh, a protectionist organization. Um, he has said other things uh, before, but today that seems to be the way he looks at it. And uh, many of our conversations with uh, administration, and not just the Belgians, with all the Europeans, turn around the idea of bilateral relationship instead of US with EU. With EU. It turns around trade deficits. So, and how can we redress the trade deficit? The trade deficit between the United States and the European Union is very significant. And, uh, and uh, uh, well, Belgium is blessed uh, with a, a trade surplus that favors the, the United States. So we are in quite unique position among the 28 member states that, uh, that uh, there is a a trade surplus in favor of the United States. Uh, so we are not, that don't ask too many difficult questions to us, but I mean, in the, when it comes to Germany, <laughs> when it comes to Germany, for example, there, uh, the questions are really, really, uh, how, how can we um, export more to your country, eh? from the United States to Germany, how can we, and how can you invest more in the United States in order to, to redress the 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 trade uh, the trade uh, balance. Um, uh, there is still a risk. I'm still referring to the trade uh, trade uh, area. That at some point um, tariffs will be imposed on the import of steel in aluminium uh, coming from the rest of the world, not just from China, but from the rest of the world. Um, and then European companies could become a kind of collateral damage of uh, this. But at the moment, it is on hold, this idea, but it's not, uh, it can come back. And then it's still possible that uh, the NAFTA agreement will be abandoned. 
with consequences for also for European companies, but of course in the first place for Mexico and Canada. And all that is of course very sad and, and um, uh, uh, because uh, uh, the United States and the European Union remain the, the two most important and the two most open economies of the world. And so logically they should be able uh, to find uh, good common ground and good common cause um, in uh, the economic uh, relationship. And uh, I'm a bit uh, personally a bit concerned that uh, at, the, at the moment there's no, not really a meaningful dialogue on trade ongoing uh, between uh, the United States and the European Union. And we have to, um, to be very careful because uh, uh, history teaches us that protectionist measures uh, are contagious. And uh, you can take a decision, a protectionist decision in five minutes. It may take five years to repair the damage. So uh, one has to be uh, one has to be very careful in this area. So I, I suggest that I stop here. I, I could make more remarks on the economy or on the relationship uh, between uh, the U.S. And, uh, and the European Union, or on other subjects, if you want. Uh, but uh, maybe we can open it up to to the questions because I was given 35 minutes, and it's 35 minutes. I think. <laughs>